Good morning, everyone. Today's reading is from Matthew 5, verses 1 through 9, the Sermon on the Mount. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. The word of the Lord. Go to the Father, can we? Lord, thank you for letting us come to you. Lord, with freedom and confidence that you indeed will pull us through. Father, we can fall on the grace that you've poured out for us. Father, as we begin this journey in the Sermon on the Mount and the heart of the matter, Lord, I pray that you would transform us. Lord, that's my prayer. That you would transform us as individuals and as families and as a church and as a community. Father, that in everything we do, we would stand on you. Father, that in everything we do, we would worship you and you alone. That we would no longer seek the stuff of earth, but that we would seek you first and foremost above all else. So Father, as we open up your word this morning, Lord, I pray that you would transform us today. And I pray for this one that would preach your word, Father. That would preach only what is from you. For you alone are worthy. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, those of you that, that don't know, I'm Harrison Spittler. I'm one of the pastors at EP. I want to welcome you here this morning. If you're not here in the room, and, and from the number of people that are in the room, I'm suspecting there are a lot of people that aren't. That are, that are listening uh, online. I'm glad we're able to do that. Uh, one of my mentors, I, I have um, three main mentors in my early Christian life, and I stayed on their shoulders. One was Al Jackson. He's a, a pastor of, uh, of Lake, Lakeview Baptist Church in Auburn, Alabama, and a, my first pastor, a dear brother. Uh, two others were at Briarwood. Tom Cheeley, who's a pastor of missions, and Frank Barker. Uh, Tom Cheely went home to be with the Lord, I think it's three years ago, maybe four years ago now. Um, what a dear, dear father uh, he was to me, a father in the faith. Uh, Frank Morehouse Barker Jr. was my spiritual father. Frank went home to be with the Lord on December 28th, just 11, 12 days ago. Um, Frank was one of the founders of the PCA. Um, there are literally thousands of churches around the world uh, that point back to Frank and say we're here because of that man. Um, when, when I step foot in heaven, there will you know, maybe be a dozen or more folks that will look and say probably more 
Uh, we'll say, we're here because you shared the gospel with us. I think when Frank stepped foot in heaven, there were thousands upon thousands upon thousands that welcomed him and said, we're here because you shared the gospel with us. Frank, if you could describe in three words, you would uh, probably choose evangelist. And you would certainly choose humble. And you would definitely choose prayer warrior. Uh, he was not a, a man that was going to win any preaching awards for his oratorical skills. In fact, John MacArthur was visiting Briarwood one day because he had heard of this great church, of this great pastor, and he's visiting one of his children who was a student at Sanford there in Birmingham. And he was sitting in there, and, he, and this guy got up and started to preach, and he leaned over to his child. He said, I thought you told me Frank Barker was preaching today. Who's this guy? And, uh, of course, it was Frank. But Frank had this unassuming, meek manner to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and all hell would shake. Frank prayed. Frank was a, um, a, stu a student at Auburn University, and after that, he became, of course, a Navy pilot. He used to tell me about um, some of the harder things he had done in his life, and one of the hardest things was to, to land his jet on the the, as he put it, the bucking deck of an aircraft carrier at night in the Sea of Japan with the lights off. Like, what? You're crazy. It's that kind of guy that would plant a church there. He talked about how that built up his prayer life. <laughs> and he wasn't even a believer yet. He's the guy that when he left the Navy, he, he, he said, and it's in his book, he, he, tells, he used to tell a story often, he said, I figured I was such a typical Navy pilot. Those of you that are Navy pilots, you might know what he's talking about. I don't. But he said he was such a typical Navy pilot, he figured the only way he was going to get into heaven is if he became a preacher. He had to swing it that far. Well, he went to seminary and then he became a believer. Frank uh, was, was humble. He was an evangelist. Meek would fit him well. And so he prayed and he prayed and he prayed, and he prayed, and he taught me how to pray. Sometimes we come up against obstacles in our, in our lives as Christians, and we think that the only way to tackle those obstacles is to bulldoze right through them. And if we can't do it that way, we're going to manipulate a way around them. Or we're going to build up a power base or, or find a few trusted, power-hungry people that will help us lobby through and achieve our desire. When Briarwood was, was growing in its early stages, there were a couple thousand members, and they were parking along the sides of the streets for half a mile down, and then walking up to get there, and neighbors were complaining, and, and there was a huge hill at the back of the property that Frank's unique idea was, let's just pray that God will move the mountain and pave, the park, pave a parking lot in place of the mountain. And so he went to his deacons, and he said, let's, let's pray that God will do that, and they scoffed. We don't have the money, Frank, and God's not going to move that hill. So he went to the elders. He thought, well, I'll go to the elders. And same thing, and the elders just kind of scoffed. And so Frank prayed. And he prayed. And one day, a secretary knocks on his door and says, Frank, there's a gentleman here. He's a contractor with AT&T. And, and the guy walks in, and, 
and he was in charge of building this property for this new AT&T regional uh, hub there south of Birmingham. And, and he said, Dr. Barker, there's this mountain behind your building, um, and it looks like it's about the same amount of dirt soil, I'm paraphrasing here, obviously, um, that, um, that we need for landfill for this building down the road. Um, would you let us purchase the mountain from you, and then we will pave a parking lot in its place? Would you be okay with that? Of course, Frank said, praise the Lord. When there's obstacles that come up against you, we, you can bulldoze your way through. You can manipulate your way around. You can pretend they don't exist. Or you can pray. And you can pray. And you can pray some more. And stand on the promises of Christ. That's where Jesus takes us in the Sermon on the Mount. He takes us to an unwavering devotion in Christ and Christ alone. We're not gonna hit all the Sermon on the Mount today, of course. We're gonna be in it through June 6th. So with, with that in mind, let me, let me recommend two resources for you, okay? One is Dan Doriani's uh, book on the Sermon on the Mount. He's got a commentary on Matthew, which is great, and he touches on some of the same stuff, but in his book on Sermon on the Mount, he dives in deep to chapters five, six, and seven on Matthew. And so I would encourage you to purchase that. It's a great reading. Um, the second one would be uh, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones' book on Sermon on the Mount. Um, buy it before you look at the size. It's about that thick. And if you just look at the size, you might be intimidated, but it's worth it. And it really is hard to put down. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a good read. Um, so um, I would encourage you to grab those two things as you navigate your way way through the Sermon on the Mount. We'll be in it to, until June, June 6th. Um, this sermon was preached to a crowd that was following Jesus and the, the crowd starting to grow and grow and grow and grow and grow. Uh, and it's time for Jesus to, to make clear to this crowd, to the world around, that if you're gonna follow me, it's going to involve certain things. And some of those things you might not like. And so he calls them all together on a mountainside and he sits down so he didn't stand up. He didn't stand up behind a pulpit. Um, he, he sat down while he wasn't just uh, reading scripture. He was creating scripture. And he sits down and he preaches. Um, he calls the disciples up to the front uh, of the crowd, but the crowd was all there. And, and the, the Sermon on the Mount then, then was used by Christ to separate those that would follow him and those that would not. Uh, Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It does what? It separates, it divides. So he, he's preaching this sermon, uh, chapter five, six, and seven, and we really believe that this was just a part of the sermon, that it was, there was more to it, but this was part of it. And so it, it separates in that way. Uh, it, it doesn't just, just separate, it, it rebukes, it corrects, it instructs. Uh, 1 Timothy uh, 3, 16 and 17, all scriptures God breathed, and he's for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. It was a sermon designed to transform, Romans 12, one and two, be transformed therefore by the renewing of your mind. So it was a sermon to, designed to, to do all that. It was a sermon designed to call us out from the crowd, from our allegiance to the stuff of earth, to an allegiance to Christ and Christ alone, uh, to call us out from the acceptable way of living life as, as religious people or irreligious people, and call us to a third way, call us to Christ 
in Christ alone. He calls uh, the crowd there and he calls us today to be disciples. Now, a disciple in, in strict language is, is a learner, but it's more than that. I, I, several years ago, um, Sandy and I invested in something called P90X. Anybody remember P90X? So you remember the pain? Yeah, P90X was a, a, it was a, it was an exercise program. We purchased it, and then it found its way to the bookshelf. <laughs> it's painful. Um, so I was a learner. I, I learned all about P90X, but I wasn't a disciple. I certainly didn't follow it. It's, to be a learner, to be a disciple is more than just a learner, um, although it does include that. To be a disciple is more than just to be a master of some art, whether it's carpentry or painting or something like that. It's more than just to be a, a master of some art or discipline or, or some teaching or some worldview. It's, it's more than just, just that. To be a disciple is, is to be an ever more transformed follower of Jesus Christ. An ever more transformed follower of Jesus Christ. Dan Doriani uh, describes the Sermon on the Mount uh, this way. He said it describes the heart, the mind, the outlook, and the values of a disciple of Jesus Christ. So the, the Beatitudes that we, we see here, and we're going to just hit the first three today, the, the Beatitudes that we see here are more than just uh, morals or, or just character qualities. They are those, and they are values, but they're more than, than only that. They're the characteristics of a transformed soul, and they stand in stark contrast to the idolatries of human nature. I am just gonna focus on verses three through five today, um, we see that God meets us through Jesus Christ. Uh, Nathan's going to approach chapter 6 or verse 6 next week uh, and, and look at God's call towards a hunger and thirst for righteousness. And then the 23rd, I'm going to approach verses 7, 8, and 9. And we look at the, the uh, outflow or the outcome of living out a hunger and thirst for righteousness. Then after that, Nathan's gonna come back and take verses 10 through 16 of the Beatitudes uh, where we see the, um, the result or the consequences of, of, of this Beatitude lived life uh, being persecution, uh, oh boy, uh, saltiness, light, and a praise towards God. So the Beatitudes, the Beatitudes really set up the whole Sermon on the Mount and take us into a deep place with Jesus the, the Beatitudes, they all begin with blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. And, we, and in some translations, it might not say blessed, it might say happy. I think the King James says, happy, happy are those, happy are those, happy are those. Well, you know, I'm happy. I was happy last night when Auburn crushed Florida in basketball. This is different. It's hard to translate the word into English. It means a deep, deep spiritual happiness, a deep spiritual blessedness, uh, a deep spiritual satisfaction. Uh, so it's more than just happy are or, or blessed are. It's, it's a deeper, deeper, deeper kind of thing. 
And these first, first three really take us to a, a place where our deep spiritual need is met in Jesus. Knowing that we're poor in spirit leads us to mourning over the depth of our sin and it leads us to meekness as we approach a God that calls us to live in a way that is foreign to this earth. Verse three tells us that poor in the spirit, or the blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What in the world does it mean to be poor in spirit? He's not talking about a physical poverty, a, a poverty of, of wealth. He's talking about a, uh, if you will, a fuel gauge in our soul. If you can look at our soul as a fuel gauge, sometimes we imagine that it's, it's full, uh, but what he's saying is no, without Jesus Christ, it's, it's empty. We are poor in spirit. If we come to Christ thinking we're full, or we're half full, and we only need him a little bit, and we only need you this much, Jesus, because I'm like, you know, seven-eighths full on my fuel gauge, then we're gonna run into trouble. When we were driving uh, our excursion, we used to have an awesome excursion. It had a 7.3 liter turbo diesel, four-wheel drive, it was so sweet. It would pull a house, I think. But you know what it won't do? It will not pull a house up a hill when there's no fuel in the tank. The, ta- the, the gauge said that it was 56 miles till empty. But I was pulling a 10,000 pound travel trailer behind me going up the North Carolina mountains. And, and it was drinking a lot more fuel than I thought it was. And suddenly you hear this <laughs> and that thing's dead. These things don't run when there's no fuel in the tank. My friends, when we approach Christ, we have to understand that the only fuel in our tank is from Christ. It's not something that we can create on our own. We cannot fill our our spirits on our own. We have to have Christ. And so we approach him as those that that are poor in spirit, not complaining about being poor in spirit, but rejoicing that he is the one that fills us. And the promise that he gives us there, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's at least two ways that we try to satisfy that poverty in our spirit. One of those is to, to fill that gauge with, with idols, thinking that they're going to make us uh, rich. They're going to give us the satisfaction that we hope for. Uh, the idols of our day are power, fame, pleasure, um, sex, money, family, success. And it's, it's normal, it's even encouraged to fill the the void in our spirit with those kind of things because we're told that those will make us happy. Those will satisfy us. Well, true happiness is realizing that we have a need that none of those things can fill and we run to Jesus instead. A second, thing we, a second way we try to, to fill that, that need is by being good enough. Uh, good enough to fill it partly or totally. Um, a friend told me years ago, he said, um, you know, the, the, the size of your Jesus is equivalent to the size of your need. I had to think about that one for a while and went back to John and said, tell me more what you're talking about here. The size of my Jesus is equivalent to the size of my need. He said, well, if you don't think you need Jesus a lot, you're not gonna have a whole lot of Jesus and unless you have all of Jesus, you don't have any of Jesus. Like, dude, you're so profound. Um, and so it, it was a, a huge thing for me to begin to recognize that kind of thing. When we feel like we only need a little bit of Jesus, reality is we don't have any. We we have to recognize we're poor in spirit. In in Matthew 23, I encourage you to go there at some point. Matthew 23, 
Jesus gives the reverse side of these Beatitudes. It was he gives seven woes to Pharisees. Let me just read the first couple here in verse 13 of chapter 23 of Matthew. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. In other words, the Pharisees were saying, you're not poor in spirit with a poverty that can be met by Jesus Christ. You're gonna meet it through the keeping of the law in the way that we've instructed you to. And what Jesus is telling them there is, you slam the door of the kingdom of heaven in their faces and you're not going in either. He goes on in, in Matthew 23 and verse 15. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. If you travel across sea and land, in other words, they, they go to great lengths to bring about, to bring people into this, this legalism. You travel ac- across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. In other words, you think you're gonna fill up that tank through your own efforts? It's not happening. It's not happening. In fact, Jesus would look at you and say, woe to you. We add to our sin and we think that we can somehow meet Jesus on our own. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When we think we have defeated sin ourselves and when we have a very cavalier cavalier attitude towards sin, the result is that we don't feel like we need God. Frank Bark used to call that practical atheism. We proclaim ourselves to be Christians, but we live as if we're not. We live as if we don't have that dependence on him. The poor in spirit, you know, the world would say, well, you know, they're losers. Well, Jesus would say something different. The poor in spirit have the kingdom of heaven, and it doesn't get any better than that. The being poor in spirit leads to a mourning, a M-O-U-R, N-I-N-G, not M-O-R-N-I-N-G. And so he said, blessed are the, those that mourn for they shall be comforted. This deeper grasp of sin leads to mourning over our sin. Now, we, we, we do need to mourn over loss, over pain, over the loss of loved ones, to mourn with those that are mourning over a loss of family members or, or friends and mourn over the, those that we, we've lost through, through COVID and and, war, and the numbers are beyond our, our imagination. There is a mourning that takes place there, and there should be. That's not what he's talking about here. What he's talking about here is more specific. He's talking about mourning over our sin, our personal sin, my sin, your sin, and mourning over the consequences of our sin. Instead of treating it with a cavalier attitude of, oh, I sinned and be done with it, he takes us to a place of, of mourning and repentance. Consider, for example, Psalm 51 or Psalm 32, David's mourning over his sin with Bathsheba and his sin of, of, of having Uriah killed. So he's, he's taken a woman, uh, he's killed her husband. He's, he's cavalier, he's brushing it off, he's turned a blind eye to it until the prophet Nathan brings it to his attention in a way that he cannot ignore. And then David breaks down in repentance and mourning against you and you only have a sin. And he speaks of his bones wasting away. David's in mourning in Psalm 51 
or in Romans 7, when you see uh, the Apostle Paul crying out about this body of sin that he has, the things I want to do, I don't do, the things I don't want to do, I find myself doing, who will rescue me from this body of death, this body of sin? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. So there, there's a mourning that takes place over our sin, our personal sin, not just the big ones, you know, uh, theft, adultery, uh, murder, not just the, the big ones that make headlines, but the, the ones that, that maybe only you and Jesus know about, uh, the manipulations or the gossip or the, the little lies that you got away with, you know, the, the, the little things, the little digs that you take at this person or that person, the, the little things of a little, little theft that no one's ever gonna notice. Even those things, there's mourning over those things because it's sin. And sin is not a small thing. I said it wasn't, it, it wasn't the, you know, a little white lie that Eve told and that Adam told in the garden. It, but it wasn't far off of that. It was the theft of a piece of fruit was the, was the physical act of sin. But what it really was, was an affront to God. It was saying, I want to be like God. I want to make the rules. I want to be like God. You know, and that's one of those things that's an acceptable sin in our culture. And that was enough for the curse and for sin to be inherited by all. So we mourn over our sin. We also mourn over the consequences of our sin. My friends, we don't sin in a vacuum. We... Our, our, our sin, whether it's, if it's something huge and obvious like murder, adultery, theft, yeah, there's those that are wounded, there's those that are, um, that are hurt by it, there's impact. For generations, there's impact. But when, when our sin is more acceptable, like legalism, control, manipulation, things like that, people are still harmed, but whereas with the first part, we, we might feel guilty and we might even become callous. With, with the second, uh, with you know, a sense of legalism, control, manipulation, a little gossip, things like that, uh, we don't feel guilty, we don't feel callous. Typically, uh, we, we feel victorious. I mean, you gotta do is spend some time on TV and, and look at the latest you know, shows from, from Marvel or, or whatever. I mean, I watch them too. Um, you know, what you see is there's a whole lot of sin and there's a whole lot of victory. And, and celebration and rejoicing over that because they've gotten power. They've gotten away with it. Instead of guilt, it's victory. And Jesus takes us to a different place of mourning. When I was in business, I worked for a company for a very short time. Um, we would take care of... Um, heating, air conditioning systems, huge chiller plants and things like that for universities, hospitals, uh, not just little systems, but huge things. Um, and and we, were, we were very adept at manipulating the bids so that the, we would kind of help them write the bids so that the only company that could win the bid was us. And that just didn't sit right. You know, I'm working with one university one day and, uh, and the, the facilities director for the whole engineer or for the whole university looked at me and he said, you know, the owner of your company 
comes here and he tells me that he's a believer in Jesus Christ. And yet here he's manipulating the bids so that only your company can win the bid. And we won the bid. And the owner of our company and an elder at our church walked into the room and he said, we did it, we're in the money. And my heart sank to the floor. And I quit. I couldn't be a part of that. My friends, God calls us to something better. He calls us to something deeper. He calls us to mourning over our sin and trusting him with the results. When we fail to mourn, it's like insulating our soul with layers of garbage, just pouring it on, wrapping it up. I used to play golf at a golf course in West Charlotte. Um, the golf course was built on a landfill, a garbage landfill where they bring in garbage and they smash it down with bulldozers and they smash it down, smash it down, smash it down. And then finally they put a lot of topsoil on it and they plant grass on it and they make it into a golf course. Maybe that's why my golf game stinks. <laughs> but every so often there would be this little two inch pipe that would come up out of the ground. It'd be about this, this tall and it would have a little crook on it and I asked my buddies what that was, and they said, well, that was for the gas that was escaping from the decomposing garbage underneath. And if that wasn't there, then there would be an explosion. Well, one day, the, one of those pipes became clogged, and guess what? The fifth fairway disappeared. <laughs> it exploded. And you could, you could see it all over, all over Charlotte. Boom! Uh, and, and so that golf course was, was closed. Um, you know, but that's what we do with our, our sand. We, we wrap it up in layers of garbage and it stinks. It stinks and it's decomposing. And there's nothing beautiful about it. And it might be beautiful on the outside. It looks like a fairway and a beautiful green. But it's, it, it's still garbage. So Christ calls us to a different place. He calls us to mourn over that, that sin. No matter how small it is or how large it is. Mourn over the consequences of that sin. That sin. Doesn't impact just us, but all those around us. The result, and the, the outcome, God promises comfort. He says, you go to the trouble to mourn and there will be comfort for you. Comfort isn't in, in keeping your sin to yourself. Comfort comes when you mourn over it. The third beatitude is the result of the first two and that's meekness. Meekness, the blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Meekness is another word that we don't know a lot about because it's not normal in our culture. David Turner in his commentary on, on Matthew says that authentic meekness is an unassuming humility, an unassuming humility that rests in God and renounces self-effort to relieve one's oppression and to achieve one's desires. Let me read that again. Authentic meekness is an unassuming humility that rests in God and renounces self-effort to relieve one's oppression and to achieve one's desires. Jesus perfectly models this humility. He goes on. Once again, Jesus goes against the grain of human culture and experience by asserting that the meek, not those well-stocked with wealth, armament, or status, will inherit the earth. Humility, though, is in short supply. But in high demand by the most humble, Jesus. He calls us to a life of humility of unassuming 
humility. He calls us to meekness. Meekness stands out because it is humility in the strongest. The strongest humility is what's called meekness. Meekness results in gentleness, mercy, listening, and love. It, it, meekness is not the same as being a wimp. Another friend of mine described meekness one day as, as being a bridled war horse. You're, you're, you're a war horse and you're fitted for war, you're fitted for battle, and you're the strongest of all the horses, but you're bridled because you're under the control of Jesus Christ. It isn't about being a strong war horse, it's about being under the control and love of Jesus Christ. So to be meek is to have an unassuming humility. Meekness is scary, it's not normal, it's not what we're taught, right? But it is the meek, not the earthly victorious that will inherit the earth. God desires, my friends, that we come to him hungry for grace, not as, as, as people with the power to do better, do better, do better, be better, be better, be better. The world tells us that if you do be better and you be be better and you, you're all these betters that you'll have that satisfaction, you'll have that success, you'll have that power, you'll have, you'll have that fame, and you'll have even that right standing before some God of your own creation. But that's not what Jesus tells us. The more we put our faith in our do better and be better, and the more we add to our record of sin. It doesn't add anything to our relationship with God, but it takes away from that. God isn't interested in our do better, but he's interested in a broken and contrite heart. Psalm 51. A broken and contrite heart he will not despise. But we love power and we love do better and we love be better often more than we love Jesus Christ because we can control the first and we can't control Christ. We build up power in our region, we build up power in our community, and, and around here, we do power really, really, really well, but Jesus isn't interested in our power. He's interested in our poverty of spirit. He's in, interested in our mourning over our sin, and he's interested in our meekness. He's interested in our soul. He's interested in a transformed church made up of transformed people as we put aside the stuff of earth and follow wholly after Jesus my friends, the Father calls us to something different. He calls us out of the world's way of achieving results to a way of meekness. It might be difficult at first. In fact, I would suggest that it will be very difficult. But it will be very good. Because as Jesus promises, there is a deep blessing, a deep spiritual happiness that is ours when we fall on Jesus Christ meekly. Where will you choose to follow? The ways of the world? Maybe the idols of your own soul? Or will you run hard, hungry for Jesus? Run hard after Jesus. Let's pray. Father, you're very sweet to us. You're so sweet to us. You give us Jesus. And we've done nothing to earn him. We've done nothing to deserve Jesus. And yet you give us Jesus. And Jesus, you pour out these offerings of mercy for us. We don't deserve it and you give us the kingdom of heaven. You promise comfort and you promise that we will inherit the earth. Lord, these things don't make sense. You have it in your power to give all those things, but we have nothing in our power to earn any of that. Oh, Father. Lord, we open up our eyes to see you, to see your mercy and your grace and to run hard, to run so very hard after Jesus. 
as a people that are longing for a home. Oh Lord, call us ever closer in Jesus. Amen. Would you stand with us?